0: Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word from Psalm 78. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat, and he gave them the grain of heaven. Men ate the bread of the angels, he sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp and all around their dwellings, and they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. John chapter 6. Verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, For this is the will of my Father, and everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the
1: synagogue as he taught at Capernaum.
0: This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, If you were here in the Sunday School Hour, you may be wondering to yourself at this point, why are we talking about this? We just talked about this. Um, I did not coordinate with John Gray on these materials, though he did quote me in the Sunday School Hour. I merely sent him some notes. And if you are unaware, our church follows a schedule of readings called a lectionary. And that lectionary is prescribed passages which are recommended for corporate worship, and we um, use that lectionary about half the time. Uh, This is a season called Ordinary Time, in which we are examining the life of Jesus Christ in his public ministry as he moved through Israel testifying to the mission that the Father had given him. And in our church during ordinary time, we will frequently not use the recommended reading. We'll go through a series. So if you were here last year, we went through Galatians. The year before that, Hebrews. This year, before I took a break, we went through Philippians. And this day, I kind of decided it would be really good to examine what did Jesus do in the feeding of the 5,000 and his teaching after that feeding. Whenever the Lord worked, he did not just do signs, but he also gave parables. And if you have ever spent time in John 6, as we are going to do today, you may have seen some of the things that Jesus does in the feeding of the 5,000 are actually parables themselves. And um, I've said this on a few occasions. John 6 perhaps is my favorite chapter in the New Testament. Um, if you've heard a number of my sermons, you'll notice I have many favorite chapters in the New Testament. But I love this passage because of what John does in helping us to understand what Jesus was doing for the context of the, the Israelites who were there that day. They knew something about what he was doing, and we're going to examine what he did and what he taught. So before we get there, I want to review what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness. Uh, John Gray did a great job this morning examining in, in brief some of the things that took place in their rebellion in the wilderness, and then I want to move from that to some details about the feeding of the 5,000. For those of you who've spent years searching the scriptures as as new creations in Christ, you will know that routinely the Holy Spirit is so kind to open your eyes to something that's been there the entire time. In fact, during the Sunday school hour, I saw yet another aspect, just a little parallel between What happened in the wilderness with the Israelites and what happened at the feeding of the 5,000 that I had never seen before. This is the glory of God's word as the Holy Spirit reveals it and illumines it to his people that Jesus Christ shines forth in everything, in every sentence, indeed in every word. And so I want to look at how Jesus Christ is not only redoing or retelling the events that happened in the wilderness but it's far greater that Jesus is not just a Moses or someone who looks like Moses but he is a much greater Moses he's greater than Moses if you you may remember when Jesus was describing himself, he was saying, you see this glorious temple, something greater than Solomon is right here. Jesus testified of his own that he's greater than anyone who's come before. And when he makes a parallel to something that happened in Israel's life, he's trying to say to them, that was a shadow, that was a symbol, that was a type which pointed to me and I'm here in your midst. And then finally, I want to look at what it means to turn to Jesus Christ and to come and to feast upon him and to drink his blood and to eat his flesh. And I want to examine what that means. And just so you understand, we're going to go to the table after this. It means much more than just going to the table. And as someone who deeply values and hopes to never miss Lord's Day worship and never be absent from the table, I'm trying to say something great when I'm saying Jesus is talking about something greater than just communion. As high of you as you could have for communion, the Lord Jesus is trying to tell his people there's something much more important than external participation in worship. The external form without the inward reality profits nothing. And that is what I believe Jesus is trying to say through the feeding of the 5,000. So if you remember, the Israelites were trapped in Egypt for 400 years. They originally were brought down to Egypt with food. If you remember, there was a famine and God provided a covering or a a way forward for them and he sent Jacob's sons down into Egypt to get grain from Joseph. Joseph had wisely interpreted by the Holy Spirit a dream that Pharaoh had about a famine which was coming which would wipe out the earth and so God in his infinite mercy raised up Egypt gave them great glory and power as they wisely stored up grain And then during the famine, they purchased all the land of the surrounding regions and nations as those people without grain gave up their little countryside farms and their fiefdoms and their little places that they owned in exchange for bread. And so Egypt was raised to the heights of the heavens on an economic and political scale. And through that glorifying of Egypt, God made a provision for his people who came down and bought grain. And interestingly, Joseph doesn't make them pay. As he gives them grain, he puts the money back in their sacks and sends them away. That's what the Lord was doing for his people. He was providing food in a a drought. And after some time, Pharaoh died, and no one remembered the glory that God had given to Egypt through Joseph, And they began to oppress the Hebrews. And for 400 years, they were captive to the demands of the Egyptians. And at some time, they were impressed into great and hard service. And so we remember that at one point, they are told to continue making bricks, but now they have to also get straw. And this we understand to be a symbol of sin, that sin will keep us captive and it will make demands upon us, which we can never achieve And so God is now, because of his great mercy and grace, he delights in redeeming his people and he causes them to cry out to him. He answers their cry and delivers them from Egypt with a mighty and outstretched arm. He wrought 10 terrible plagues upon the Egyptians. These plagues are so great and grievous that even Pharaoh, the emperor of the world at that time, his hand is forced a few weeks ago, I was going to Kroger, and I don't know what happened in the Miami Valley, but all of a sudden, that day, there were hundreds and hundreds of flying ants. Did anyone else see this? It was, there, these things happen. I've heard stories about the black flies in Michigan where for two weeks, you really shouldn't go to the lakes up there. This is what took place, and it was very difficult. You couldn't drive without them landing on your car. And I got out of the car and my little daughter was in my arms and she's terrified of these flies. Now there were probably a hundred in that parking lot, maybe a thousand. I'm not good at counting flies. (laughs) But the point was it terrified her. I want you to think about the terror that God brought on the evil empire of Egypt for destroying and oppressing his people people. They used to kill their children. The Egyptians made the Hebrews kill their boys when they were born. God wrought terror against those who oppressed his people. They were great and impressive things. Things which I will probably never forget that day that I went to Kroger. There were so many flies in the air, so great were the number. I will probably remember it forever. Imagine for weeks and weeks Things like that in greater scale, countrywide taking place. Flies, locusts, frogs coming out of every sewer and every drain pipe and every gutter. Imagine what that would have been like. For the Israelites, they would have never forget- forgotten these things. And yet, as soon as they're brought into the wilderness, they begin to turn back in their heart. God knows the needs of his people. And before they ask him, he provides not only drink, but bread. And we know that they were not content with that. In our psalm today, Psalm 78, he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. The psalm pictures Yahweh as being infinitely mercy infinitely gracious, like a good father who takes care of his children. He knows when they need to eat, and before his children ask, he's already provided food. You parents, you might understand this parallel or analogy in in this way. Your children don't remind you to go to work, hopefully. You go to work. You put food on the table. You provide for them, and Jesus then commends children. They they receive everything. Children just receive. They don't plan. They don't worry. This is the goal of Jesus Christ, to present the Father. And here in the wilderness, the Father is being shown as someone who is gracious, compassionate, and provides for his people before they need. Though Yahweh had given everything that they possibly could have needed, not only bread, but also water, and sustaining their clothing, sustaining their sandals, sustaining their wheelbarrows, their carts, their wagons, what have you. Nevertheless, they rebelled against him and were immediately discontent with what they had. They begged for meat. They demanded it. This absolutely angered Yahweh, but he gave them the desire anyway. Psalm 78:26. he caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by his power, he led out the south wind. If you go back into Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus, you'll, you'll see passages where it talks about God moving the winds. The, the symbolism here is so important. God is moving heaven and earth to provide for his people. Just like he did in the plagues. He he was causing things to take place on a cosmic worldwide scale. He's causing a wind to blow. And the quail who are migrating from somewhere decide to go fly into a desert and fall down dead. I can't remember who it was. I once heard a sermon describe the quail which fell as like just cheeseburgers falling and and you just had to get them off the ground. I love that idea. He, he rained meat on them like dust. I would love that. <laughs> Winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp and all around their dwellings. And they ate and were well filled. That's the point that I'm trying to make today. They ate and they were well filled for he gave them what they craved. Now, if you are a student of your scriptures, you know what takes place next, but we're not going to dwell on that for the moment. We'll come back to that in a minute. Though Yahweh fed them with both bread and meat, they didn't trust him. They did not delight in him. They were not satisfied, but even grumbled after this. In the face of this hunger and adversity that had come not only after the bread, but also after the quail, they didn't approach Yahweh based upon his revelation of himself as the kind God, the God who sees, the God who can act and has acted, and therefore the one who we can trust to act in the future. If he destroyed Egypt in bringing us to freedom, surely he can bring us food. That's what they should have thought. Nevertheless, the people of Israel did not think that way. And indeed, they didn't even ask. Worse, they grumbled. They made demands. They made accusatory comments against Moses and Yahweh. The people of Israel gave into lies which caused them to doubt the nature of God and to not be content with his provision. Paul then in the New Testament warns the Corinthians saying explicitly that these things happened as examples for us. It is not enough to know the story. It must be particularly applied to our condition. The scriptures demand that we make allegorical and metaphorical application of the Old Testament accounts. These are not stories to tell our children in Sunday school as good moral lessons or just little trite, little, hey, isn't it neat that God provided food in the wilderness? No, in fact, these stories are not just positive moral recommendations, trust in God. They also are prohibitions and warnings. God was trying to say to his people, do not be like the Israelites who wandered in the desert and grumbled against me. That is what Paul then goes on to say for the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 10. We must not be like them. Do not be like them. What did they do that Paul is telling us not to do? Is they ate and they were well satisfied, but in eating the bread, they didn't look up to the one whose hand it came from. That is the great evil of the Israelites. They were never Content. They were never thankful. They ate in food and in substance, but they did not eat in soul. And that is the great danger for not only the unbeliever, but also the Christian today. Therefore, we must hear God's warnings, not just in the past, but also in the feeding of the 5,000. We must hear the warnings of Jesus Christ, lest we be like them, and presume all the while eating at the Lord's table to be feasting with Christ and upon Christ and yet never eating at all. Jesus warned his hearers of his day. He said all of them ate. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. He said all of our fathers were baptized under the cloud and through Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, but they didn't eat in a way that profited them. So what is the answer then for eating and profiting? Well, it is exactly what we heard earlier this morning, it is to actually look upon the Lord Jesus Christ. In his gospel, the, the, the apostle John records the feeding of the 5,000 in such a way as it would be easy for us to make connections to what took place in the wilderness. He highlights and emphasizes certain details which not only took place in the account, but because of what we know John's purpose to cause his readers to be able to believe, we know that John is, is writing in such a way as to truly emphasize certain details. John is not using poetic or creative license. He is truthfully telling what took place and he's highlighting the things which he wants to highlight to say something about what happened in the wilderness is being redone here with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to look at a few parallels. In the Exodus, Moses takes a great group of people, a large crowd, through the Red Sea. And they pass through the sea. They go from one side of the sea to the next. At the beginning of this passage, we see Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. He crosses the Sea of Galilee and the crowd follows. I find it very helpful to, without closing my eyes, in the eye of my mind, to kind of picture these things. To get a sense of what's taking place in a, I don't have a better word, than architectural scene. If you can imagine the story, Moses is taking a great group of people through the Red Sea. Likewise, here at the very beginning, Jesus brings a great crowd out to this Sea of Galilee. Moses ascends Sinai along with Aaron and the elders of Israel. We know that they go up onto the mountain to eat with Yahweh and to feast With God, And they stay there for quite a while. In this exact same way, Jesus brings the disciples. On verse 3 of John 6, Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down with his disciples. So there's parallels here. There's little ripples of the story that are being retold here in such a way as we would hear it and say, Wow, that reminds me of that one time. God is doing this again through Jesus. Christ intentionally accomplishes this sign at the Passover, John, 4, John 6, 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This is the beginning of the context. The Passover was the meal that celebrated the flight out of Egypt. And so Jesus is saying, just like you ate Passover bread, I'm going to give you bread. Instead of lamb, there's going to be fish. The meal changes a little bit but it's the same thing. It's the same story, but it's much louder and it's much more important to catch this time. Just as Jethro advised Moses to break up the people into different groups who could then ask questions to those leaders and those leaders, if it was too hard, could then ask questions to Moses, Jesus also commands the people to be settled in groups of 50 and 100. Some of the gospel writers emphasize certain numbers. The point is that Jesus is going to mediate or send his food through the disciples. Christ takes the loaves and the fish and he blesses them. And as he blesses them, he raises them up to the heavens. Now, John doesn't emphasize that as much. He does say it, but it's actually recorded out of order. Other gospel writers describe him as taking the food and lifting it up symbolically saying, this is food coming down out of heaven. And so he presents this meal, this, these loaves and these fishes, as a new manna and a new quail. Again, it's similar, but it's a little different. Just as the Israelites were organized and administered by tribe, when they were determined to camp in the wilderness, they were divided into groups. They were not allowed to be one mass of people. If you read Exodus and Deuteronomy, there were specific orders that each tribe would be organized and so that that tribe would not be lost. God was very intentional. He wanted the tribes to be preserved as distinct groups so that no one's name would be blotted out of his book. Likewise, at the end of this meal, they collect 12 baskets of bread. That number is, of course, not a coincidence. God is saying something. He has provision for his people. And Jesus Christ is able to make that provision. As soon as they gathered the leftovers, the people in John's account recognize Christ as the fulfillment of Moses' great prophecy. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses gave a prophecy saying that the Lord will raise up a prophet like unto me from among your brothers, it is to him that you must listen and obey. And the people in John chapter six, verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. How did they make that connection? I would like to submit that they knew the story of manna in the wilderness and they got it like we're getting it right now. They understood what was going on. They saw the parallels between Jesus and Moses, and they understood, in a sense, who he was. Not in fullness, but in a sense. They recognize him as a prophet, but as we see from this passage, they don't know who he is. They eat with him. They recognize him as being a fulfillment of prophecies, but they only recognize it in a kernel and not in the the nut or the, the fruit. They recognize it in a shell, but not in the substance and the source. They see Jesus as someone who can be like Moses. They don't recognize him as someone greater than Moses. Jesus accomplished this sign on purpose. He did not merely wish to satisfy the hunger of the 5,000 people. He had a greater purpose in mind than just feeding the people. This is the great error of the liberals who read this passage, and by liberals I don't mean political liberals, I mean theological liberals, who twist this passage into saying the church ought to be about feeding people, or the church ought to be about meeting needs alone. Yes and amen to meeting needs. The point of Jesus's action here isn't food, It's something much greater than food. He gives them food to obtain an audience for a chance to say something much more important, that they're not coming to him to eat and drink in soul. They merely taste the food, and that's all the reason that they're following him. He knows at this point that they are going to return to follow him because they ate food and they want more food. It would be good if they were returning for spiritual food, they are coming for a second meal. They just don't want to have to go back to town and buy food. They've returned to get the next meal. In some way, it's good that they followed him, but at, on another way, it's bad. In fact, John records these two things. In John 6, 2, he, it says, A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They wanted health care. It's not wrong to come to Christ to be healed. But they weren't being healed of the right things. Likewise, Jesus tells them, John 6:26, Jesus answered them, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. So they were seeking him because of signs, then he feeds them. And now he says, you're not seeking because you saw signs, but you are seeking because you ate your fill of the loaves. They want another meal. He then uses this opportunity to say something more important. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Do you remember what would happen if the Israelites didn't gather manna every day? It would spoil. Jesus says to them, don't work for the food that perishes. Interestingly, he says something. He says, do not work, but look closely, but for the food. So this is an elliptical um, verb. It is a phrase that is just omitted. But if you look closely, he says, don't work for this food, but do work for that food. And the question would be, what does he mean? He says, don't work for food. And instantly, we hyper-Calvinists might say something like, he's trying to get them to not work out their self-efforts to come to God. And I would say, sort of. He tells them to do something. He tells them to work, and paradoxically, he then says, don't work for just the food, but work for something that he will give them. Seeming to have a desire to obey, they then ask him for more clarity. They kind of get what he's saying, but they don't understand fully. They then ask him plainly, They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And here Jesus gives us what I think is the entire point. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. I believe that Jesus is rightly describing the goal and effort of all Christian preaching and Christian repentance. The work of faith, which is required to do the works of God, is this, that we make every opportunity, take every opportunity, make every effort to destroy those things which prevent us from seeing him. He says, work for the bread which you will be given. Work for those things which are already given to you. I take that to mean that Jesus is warning them, saying there are things that you love, things that you want, things that you're coming to as your source of joy and source of subs- sustenance that do not satisfy. It's food that perishes. It's bread that spoils tomorrow, not just a few weeks from now. It's spoiled almost as soon as it's eaten. Don't work for that bread. Do the work of faith, the work which consists in believing in him. And immediately we would go to Paul and say, well, how can they believe unless they hear? Right? So when Jesus is saying work, he doesn't mean well up faith on your own, from your own effort, but rather he means to look upon me and to see all that God is for you through me. That's what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. You cannot believe in Jesus Christ merely giving assent to his existence. The work which God commends is the work of seeing Christ as satisfactory, as pleasing, as faithful, as making promises that can't be broken. That's the work. Of the work of God. This is rightly called work because it requires the wrestling of soul against all despair and all discouragement in the light of sin. Part of the story of the wilderness is to explain to those who are in Christ today that though you take the slave out of Egypt, the great, it's commonly phrased, it was impossible to get Egypt out of the slave. They constantly wanted to return to that which they knew. The work of faith for the Israelite was to say, no, we don't want to go back. Remember what happened here. Remember what happened there. Let's trust in the blood on the lintels to protect us during the Passover. Let's trust in the faithfulness of God. That is the work that God commends. The crowd hears his reference to Moses at this point, but they don't understand. In fact, they indeed object, and they demand a greater sign than they had already seen. Remember John 6, 2. John says the the whole reason they were there to eat that day was because they had seen signs. And now he had done an amazing sign, multiplying bread to such a great number that not only was everyone satisfied, but there was more left over. There was ample bread for the journey out of the wilderness. There was enough food that they would not fall in the wilderness. And so Jesus then tells them to work for the bread which will never perish, that is himself. And then they demand a greater sign. Then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread which comes down from heaven, Jesus is teaching, is himself. Jesus not only teaches that there is a bread which comes down from heaven, which will feed his people, but something far greater than just bread from heaven. He's not only the bread which satisfies the soul, he's also, and this is something so important to remember, he's also the one who takes the wrath in the desert it's actually the case that i didn't really fully get it until this morning i if you remember the story they eat the bread they eat the quail what happens after the quail god's anger at the people comes and he destroys those who turned away in their heart from among the people what happens in john 6 Jesus feeds the crowd with bread. He feeds them with quail. Does the wrath of God come? It doesn't come. That's the point of the parable. Jesus is saying, I'm the bread. You get to eat of me. And not only that, I'm going to give my life for you. And that's what the point of this passage is. He's trying to say, I'm not only infinitely sweet to your soul. I'm not only the only one who satisfies. But you remember that, we just connected here on Moses. They, they all recognize him as a greater prophet. The greater prophet stops the wrath of God and he makes a way of escape for those who will trust in him. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That is one of the most precious promises in preaching and evangelism. If you're ever worried that you're not being articulate enough or not convincing enough, anyone who's given comes despite your preaching, not because of your preaching or evangelism. But at the same time, it's a great reminder if you come to Christ, if you want to come to Christ, He's not going to cast you out. Don't allow the enemy to say, well, what if you're not one of the elect? That's a twisting of what our faith says. It says, all those who ask, receive. All those who seek, find. All those who knock, have the door open to them. Anyone who wants to come to Christ does come to Christ because wanting to come to Christ is only done in response to hearing promises that God has already given in the gospel. No one wants to come to Christ apart from hearing promises about who Christ is and all that God is for them in Christ. In Jesus' own teaching here, belief in him is not acknowledging the fact of his existence. This is why apologetics is helpful but not vital. It It is helpful in that it establishes plausibility for the New Testament. In the minds of people, we have objections to the gospel, not just the theological truths, the spiritual truths, but we try to put little kind of weak eggshells around our unbelief. Well, how do we know that we trust the 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 writings of the New Testament or or how do we know that Jesus really was a historical figure? And at one level it's important that we dismantle those arguments. They're very powerful for those who are trapped by them. They are not enough to show a person who Jesus Christ is. It is not enough that you understand the historical fact of Jesus's coming. And salvation, belief in Jesus Christ, does not consist in knowing dates. Oh, well, he was born at either 1 BC or 3 AD, and he lived for 30 years and died on a cross. Objectively knowing those facts are not believing in him. Believing in Jesus Christ is much more than mental knowledge of the details of the historical accounts. Believing in Jesus Christ consists in coming to him in your soul as the food that never fails, the drink that fully quenches your thirst. Belief in Jesus Christ is that which comes to him. And the reason I say that is because of this. Though the crowd saw him, they did not see him with eyes of faith. And Jesus then says to them this, that nevertheless the Father is drawing some of them in that moment and some of them will come and taste him. What is the remedy for those who taste of him a little bit but don't fully enter into the meal It is to keep looking, keep showing, and keep looking. For those who are trying to reach people with the gospel, keep presenting Christ. For those who are being drawn by God, keep looking until you see him for who he is. Verse 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. This is is what I believe to be the progression. If you were here during the Sunday school hour, you remember that by looking from the snake to the bronze serpent on the pole, they look in response to the announcement of the promise of deliverance. They're told when you are perishing, look. They hear the promise of escape and they believe and therefore obey in response and the obedience is the obedience of faith it's faith-filled obedience that's what it means to come to Jesus Christ to to abandon one's heart to the Lord to depend upon him for everything Jesus then continues to teach and here he does one of the most wonderful things something that all preachers should imitate he uses additional teaching which sounds confusing, but is actually quite clear, to remove doubt and unbelief and to expose it as such by teaching something that's very hard for the natural mind to understand. Being the bread of life for the world necessarily means being eaten. If, if I say I'm the bread of life, the implication is I'm going to be eaten because that's what you do with bread, right? You eat bread. You don't, you don't admire bread. You taste it. You toast it. You put butter upon it. Bread then is glorified into a meal, right? Um, I forget who it was. Maybe Chesterton. I, I, I know perhaps the Burks might be able to help me. Someone once said, it's amazingly easy for bread and water to become toast and tea with a little act of glorification, that is what is taking place. Jesus is offering himself as a meal that satisfies. But for that meal to satisfy, you have to taste him. For the natural mind, this teaching is confusing and perplexing, and that is exactly Christ's point. Only those who are being taught by the Spirit can understand what he's saying. For the heart that is drawn by God, this becomes the most natural thing in the world. It's like learning a second language so well that you forget your first. It can happen, and that's exactly what does happen in the new birth. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Remember what we talked about earlier how in the wilderness they ate the bread, they ate the quail, and in eating the quail, it says, while it was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against those who had grumbled. How does Jesus present himself as the greater prophet? He says, Here's bread, here's fish. That's not the real bread. I'm the real bread. You can eat me, and the wrath won't come. Why? Because I'm giving my life for you. I'm going to step between the people and the wrath which is coming against their unbelief and hardness of heart. Though he is the bread, he actually will give himself as that bread upon the cross. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you but whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Don't be confused. Eternal life does not mean life that lives forever, alone. In fact, when Jesus was praying his final prayer before his crucifixion, he told us clearly in John 17 what eternal life is. And this is why I am so strongly trying to impress upon you this idea that belief in Jesus Christ does not consist in knowing details about him. It consists in a soul communing with him through his grace, through his word, through his people, through his spirit. In such a way as you come to know him and he comes to know you and there is a relationship It's not just a a relationship in some trivial way. There is a soul communion with the Lord Jesus. It's coming to recognize Jesus as being the supremely satisfying bread, which he is. But he's not satisfying unless you eat. The reason why we know this is because eternal life, Jesus said, is knowing God. Eternal life is not just living for eternity. Eternal life is knowing and relating to the eternal one. It's the life of the eternal one commingling with your life in such a way as you, you are raised from a dead soul into a completely new creation. That's what eternal life is, and that's what Jesus wants to give to his people. He says in verse 55, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. For whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. You see, you can't come to this table in a few minutes and really eat with Christ unless you're eating with him in soul. As much as I value what we are about to do, make no mistake, I do not wish to dissuade anyone from coming to the table. The point is, don't not come because you haven't yet abided with him, but rather come resolving to abide. Don't abstain from the table thinking, oh, well, one day I'll get around to repenting. Repent. Truly enter in, recognize and look upon Christ. See him as he puts himself forward in these passages as the bread which satisfies the soul, as the water which quenches an unquenchable thirst. And in doing that, in looking to him, he will satisfy you. Feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood is not cannibalism. It's interestingly how close the first century church held to the importance of these metaphors. They were actually accused in the Roman culture of eating their Messiah. For those who did not know what took place during the church services, they weren't initially public to the world, they were very confused because they would hear these phrases and these accusations. Well, they, they eat their Lord there. And it's very interesting when you look at the false religions of the world, of which all are false, save for Christianity alone. All of them involve eating particular things in certain ceremonies and rituals. If you look at any religion, that's always been true. Why? Why? because it's something that God left his thumbprint on the nature of his world and reality. We were made with unsatiable hunger and unquenchable thirst, and we are desperately trying to be satisfied. The point that Jesus makes is don't look for other bread. I'm the right bread. That's what he says to his people. So Jesus plainly teaches here that feasting on his flesh and drinking his blood consists in. it. It is caught up with abiding in him. I just want to go back to this verse, verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. You can change that sentence around and say, all those who do abide in him are eating his flesh and drinking his blood. That's what it means. So, as we move to this table, I would deeply encourage you. Jesus Christ is that which satisfies the soul. Everything else in your life, no matter how good it is, now no matter whether it's a good thing or something that is actually sinful and you are deceived in thinking is a good thing, none of those things satisfy. Christ alone satisfies. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus' teaching. We pray that, Lord, as we move to this table, that you would cause us to not just come physically, but that we would come in our soul, that we would come spiritually as well, that we would look upon your son as he's been raised up and crucified, that we would look toward him and that we would run to him, that we would abandon ourselves to him, and that we would indeed taste and see that he is good.